Well, I'm so delighted to be here in Birmingham this morning. And I found there's a question I can ask any church that kind of gives me a feel for who I'm talking to. Because you can divide the world into two groups of people. There are dog people and there are cat people. So just to get a figure of what, what's happening here at Dawson this morning. How many dog people do we have here this morning? Whoa, all right. And how many cat people who will publicly admit it? <laughs> I say that as the dog people always win, which makes tremendous sense to me because dogs are better in every way. They, they just really are. And, and having been a dog person my entire life, I never thought that part of being a good husband would actually be holding a funeral for a cat. That's actually what happened rather early on in my marriage. My wife and I had just a little toddler girl at the time. I was going through seminary and times were tight. So we rented this tiny little rundown house. Had a shared driveway with another very tiny house. And that was rented by a young gal who lived there with her cat named Remington. And one morning I had a lot to get done that day. So I was hoping to get an early start. So I'm pulling out of our shared driveway. But right in front of the driveway in the street, I saw Remington. He'd been hit by a car or truck. Something had gotten him and I... Man, I can't just leave him there. So I, I parked my car, went to our neighbor's house, knocked on the door as gently as I could, tried to explain what I'd found. When she came running out, she sees Remington and just starts crying on the spot. That drew my wife and daughter's attention. They came running out. They saw Remington and now they're crying. So I'm practically crying, not between you and me that I cared that much about one less cat in the world. One could call that improvement, considering your, your perspective. But I, I just, I wanted to be a sensitive husband, right? I, I want to be an empathetic father and a good neighbor to our friend. So they decided the only thing we had to do was to send Remington out with a few f full funeral. And since I was going to seminary, I was chosen to officiate. <laughs> So literally the first sermon or first funeral of my life was for a, a dead cat. And I, I actually learned a couple lessons. One is you just have to let, the, uh, let, let people speak well of the dead. They just need to do that. And so when somebody said he was an unusually smart cat, I just, I held my tongue. I'm thinking, he was a cat. He got hit by a car. How smart could he be? You know, he just jump out. Of, but no, you, you don't go there. But finally, we got him in the ground. I thought with some degree of sensitivity, I could go about my day. And so my wife and daughter peel off into our house. And our neighbor starts to walk into hers. And as soon as I touched the door handle of my car, thinking, here's freedom. I can do what I wanted to do. I hear a scream coming from my neighbor's house. I run up her steps. And she's white-faced. I mean, she can't even speak. She just turns and points at the couch. And there sat Remington waving his tail. <laughs> we buried somebody else's cat. <laughs> to this day, we don't know whose cat we buried. Obviously wasn't Remington. So my second lesson as a young pastor was make sure you're burying the right person. I mean, I, my first funeral was a farce from beginning to end. But more to the point, if you had asked me in college before I got married, I was pretty young, just 22 years old. Gary, to be a good loving husband, to be sensitive to your wife's needs, you're going to have to learn how to do a sensitive, empathetic funeral for a cat. I, I never could have believed that would happen. And those of you who are married know that when you get married, you have no idea what marriage is going to ask of you. And certainly if you're single, as you're thinking of someone to marry, you may have no idea what's ahead in your future. But if I could go back to the 22-year-old who was getting married for the first, well, the only time, but, but just about to get married... 
I said, these are the things I really want you to take away, to have a spiritually vibrant and spiritually abundant marriage. I want to share one of those things this morning and then some other things we'll talk about this afternoon. And it would begin with this. I would ask myself, Gary, what do you think your greatest need is? A lot of us live with a real sense of what we think our greatest need is, but we've never chosen that greatest need. We just sort of let them develop and they move us and they motivate us. We've never really evaluated them against scripture. They just sort of appear. You know, well, how, how do I know what my greatest need is? Look at what makes you angriest. What makes you most fearful? What raises the most anxiety? If you look behind that response, you may find, I need financial security. I need respect. I, I need to be adored. I need people like me. You may never thought of it in those words. But boy, when somebody threatens any one of your greatest needs, your own response will tell you what that is. Let me tell you, the sense of that greatest need, it starts young. I have a friend, he's a worship leader at a church. And the challenge for a worship leader, you always have to show up at church on time. He's got a young family, so he and his wife have a schedule pretty much where he takes whatever kid is bathed and dressed and ready to go. And his wife follows 10 to 15 minutes behind with the rest of the kids. And one morning, it was just his toddler girl. But he was already running behind. So he's rushing to church, you know, kind of driving like this and, and hoping the clock would stop. Gets to the church, jams the car into park, goes around to the side, opens up the side door, and then his heart just sinks. His wife had left a tube of red lipstick in the back seat, and the little girl had found it. And she had painted her face. She looked like a clown. I mean, it went past her lips to her ears. It was in her hair. It was all over. And he said, oh, honey, we don't have time for that. Here, give me the lipstick. She goes, but daddy, I'm not beautiful yet. He said, honey, lipstick doesn't make you beautiful. It doesn't? No, you need mascara, you need blush, you need... <laughs> it's Dallas, what do you expect? So at a very young age, this little girl thought, what do I most need when I'm going to church? I need to be beautiful. Nobody had taught her that. She just, that's what was driving her. What drives you when you wake up in the morning? Maybe you've never thought about it. Maybe you've never asked God to inform it with scripture, but... But what do you grow up? What do you wake up with thinking your greatest need is today? David's been doing a great series on the Sermon on the Mount, starting with the Beatitudes. He's talked about Jesus' upside-down view of life. Remember the first week, it was spiritual poverty, the things that we think we lack and actually be our, our, our greatest abundance. And last week, he talked about Jesus saying, Blessed are the meek. For they'll inherit the earth. And I love this. Near the start, he talked about how imagine if companies or colleges took this seriously. You need a new CEO or you need a new head coach. Say Nick Saban finally moved on, which I know stops the heart for Alabama fans and Auburn. It can't happen to you soon enough. But, but, but imagine they did that. And imagine the athletic director saying, we need to find a coach who's meek. Are you kidding me? But Jesus says, that's where the abundant life is found. Well, what I'm about to share, when it came to me wrestling with what my greatest need is from God's perspective, it was 180 degrees differently from God's view. This is one of the biggest upside-down views I've ever encountered. In fact, I would say it's had the biggest impact on my marriage next to something I'll share this afternoon. Because when I got married, I believed 
my greatest need was to be loved. It's what the movies told me. That was the plot of movies. It was the, what people sang about. It's what everybody celebrates. Your life will be best. It will be most fulfilled. It will be happiest when you find this person who always has your back, who is always there for, who loves you in a way that nobody else has ever loved you. And a lot of us, that's what we need for the happiest life. But on the day I got married, I believe that God would have looked at that and said, Gary, that can't be your greatest need. Because here's where it sets you up for a real problem. When you have, when I get married thinking my greatest need is to be loved, and then I marry a woman who thinks her greatest need is to be loved, what do you have? In the words of a southern preacher, two ticks and no dog. <laughs> Think about it. It, it. it doesn't work. Because God would have looked at me and said, Gary, that can't be your greatest need because I have loved you like no one could ever love you. I've given my son, Gary, my son, to prove my love for you, to make a way for you to be reconciled to me. And then I've given you my Holy Spirit who comforts you, who counsels you when you do those stupid things, makes you miserable so you repent so that you can know, I will not let go of you easily. I will not let you wreck your life without speaking up, without making your conscience come alive. You couldn't be more loved than you are now. Now, let me just say, if you're not in Christ, if you don't know what it means by that, if you don't have a relationship with Jesus, I do believe your greatest need is to be loved. Not by another human, not by a romantic partner, but by God who created you. That's where life begins. But for those of you who know that Jesus is your Lord, scriptures would teach us Jesus' upside down view of life would be your greatest need is no longer to be loved. Maybe you're not feeling like you're experiencing that love from God, but that's on us, not on him. Because now, greatest need isn't to, to be loved. Our greatest need is to learn how to love. And for me, when I became convinced that my greatest need is to learn how to love, every situation in life changed. Not just marriage, although that was huge, but parenting, at work, even driving in a car, if you could believe it. I mean, all of those situations change where here's an opportunity. How do you love a person who's fearful? How do you love a person who doesn't share your values? How do you love a person who's impatient or for, and, and all of those things, if life is about learning how to love instead of resenting people, I can learn to respond the way that God would have me do. Because when we think our greatest need is to find another human who can love us like only God can, we're going to be frustrated every day because no human can. But if instead we learn that life is about learning to receive God's love and loving others as only God can through us, every day is an opportunity and every day is a promise. I don't expect you to take my word for it. I know you're well taught in the word. I've heard some of your pastor's sermons, so I know we have to go to scripture. And Paul sets the table for this in Colossians chapter 3. Verse 14, and I, I love the book of Colossians because it's such a vibrant book. It's a brand new church. You know what I said? They didn't have grandfathers or grandmothers in the faith. They, they didn't have others to look at how it meant to be a Christian. Paul's writing to people who are all experiencing the first time. This is how Christians behave. You believe the right things. This is how it affects what you do. And so he lays out all of the things they're supposed to do. And then he sums it up in verse 14. You know what? Above everything else, there's exactly what he says. Above all of this. I've told you how it applies here and here and here. But above all, if you really want me to summarize it, it's about this. 
clothe yourselves with love. What matters more than anything, he says, for the Christian is that we learn what it means to love as God has loved us. And then you connect this with 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 8. Now, many of you know that if you're familiar here. Peter was written by, not a rhetorical question, not a trick question. Peter was written by Peter. There you go. All right. For 1 Peter 4, very different person than Paul. Paul wrote Colossians. Here you have Peter, a tempestuous fisherman. Paul was a scholastic rabbi, scholarly, all of that. They, they couldn't have been more unalike in their training, in their background, in their temperament. And usually when people preach, you can, you can sort of see your own prejudices, your own leanings, what, what interests you most. And that's what's so fascinating to me when two such different personalities trying to summarize the Christian life for the early church come up with the same thing. Because look at what Peter says in 1 Peter 4, 8. Read the first two words with me. Above all. Does that sound familiar? He's saying essentially the same thing as Paul did. Okay, here we go. I've told you this and this and this. But above all of that, ultimately it's this. Maintain constant love for one another. Two of the pillars of the New Testament church. And what do we need to do, church? We need to put above all, we need to learn how to love. It's a fair question. How do two such distinct and different personalities come to the same conclusion trying to teach the church what they have to do? The answer is they were filled with the same spirit. They followed the same Lord. They had the same teacher who spoke of the upside down life, Jesus Christ. In John chapter 13, beginning with verse 34, Jesus is speaking at the Last Supper. And he completely changes the whole notion of what faith in God means. When he says this to his disciples, a new commandment I give to you. Now that's showing his deity. A prophet can explain a commandment. A prophet can't give a commandment. But here's Jesus saying, in all authority, this is what it now means to be my follower. I'm giving you a commandment. And here's what the commandment is. That you love one another, even as I have loved you. So he defines it as he's demonstrated that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if, if, if you have love for one another. God's love for us isn't conditional. Our demonstration of that love is. Whether God's love is seen by the world, Jesus says, depends in part upon whether we're loving each other as he commands us to do. Jesus is ten, essentially telling his disciples, here's my plan to reach the world. I want to create a community of people so excelling at the art of love. They study love. They encourage each other to love. They talk about what love is. That they create a, a community that loves in such a way that the world has never seen anything like it. And they stand up and take notice. And, and they actually gossip about it in a good way. Uh, applying it to marriage, it would be that a Christian husband, the, the way he treats his, his wife. And the world watches as a Christian wife treat your husband and they listen and they study and they observe and, and they finally come to this moment of revelation. Oh, yeah. Okay. I bet you they're one of those Christians. 
Because every time I see a man love his wife that way, every time I see a wife treat her husband that way, they always end up going to one of those Christian churches. I bet you they're Jesus people. Because they're the only kind of people we see that have marriages just like that. What that tells us is that our marriages are far more than places for us to experience happiness. Our marriages are designed to be places where God's gospel is demonstrated to the world. He's given us such a love for each other. The world stands up and takes notice saying, we have never seen anything like this before. Would you tell us how it happens? Now, challenges, I believe this is great spiritual warfare going on. Satan realizes if we did this, He's done. He, he has no hope. Satan knows that when love is demonstrated like that, he can't manufacture any artificial substitute. He can't have any lie that is as powerful as the love of Christ revealed through us. And you know this. You know if you've experienced real love or lust, you lose your taste for lust. That if you've experienced what it is to encourage someone, you lose your, your thirst for gossip. That if you've been generous, you realize being selfish or hoarding, there's no joy, there's no happiness in that. And, and Satan is panicking, thinking, if they actually took this seriously as a commandment, we really are going to lose everything we've look, worked for. And so you can imagine him, this is a little fanciful, but just imagine him gathering his flunky demons. Look, th this is ball game right here. If we don't get this done, if we don't undercut this command of Jesus, we're going we're gonna to lose. So we're going to create this whole nation called the soulmate, another human who can love you, that is connected to you mystically, that, that no one else will ever love you like they will. And, and life to be fulfilling is all about finding the soulmate. And, and we know they can get infatuated. So for a little bit, maybe a year and a half, maybe two years, it will feel like they found it. They'll think, this is it. This is what I've needed. This is what I've wanted. And, and then it'll start to fade. They'll hang on for a few years and then they'll say, no, this isn't the right one. I've got to find another person. And so if we're lucky, we can keep them going through a series of relationships in their life because they think their greatest need is to be loved like that. They don't think their greatest need is to learn how to love. And we can keep them so preoccupied with that that they never get down to what really matters, what their greatest need really is. And that's to learn how to love. When I wrestled with this, I'm not going to tell you that it was one time of conviction, one Bible study that did it. God began to bring scriptures together and, and sort of, well, maybe, and then maybe. But the day I began waking up convinced by God's truth, my greatest need today is not to be loved by any human. It's to be learning how to love. That's the day my marriage really began to change and to take off. Otherwise, people annoy you. Otherwise, people are problems. They're not opportunities. We're like the people who drive to the gym and drive circles around the parking lot. You know where I'm going, some of you. Looking for a close place to park before you go into exercise. <laughs> Have I lost the big picture? And we lose the big picture. Because then you could watch those people go into the gym and you might ask yourself, as an, why do they do that? They're paying $75 a month to make their arms hurt and their legs sore. They're going to be smelly. They have to take a shower. They're going to be tired. You think, why would they do that? But then if you ask them, 
They'll say, well, if I accept this hurt, if I accept this pain and this challenge, if I get messy, I believe I can become faster. I believe I can become fitter and stronger and healthier. So it's worth it. And it's like people looking at us as Christians. Why do you stay in your marriage when it seems so difficult? Why don't you just write off your kids? Why why don't you run at the first sign of conflict? We'd say, you know what? Asking for forgiveness, unbelievably hard. Giving forgiveness, just as difficult. Learning to serve when you don't think anything comes your way. Yeah, it is hard. It is painful. But here's the thing. I think I can become humbler. I think I can become more patient in this relationship. I think maybe even I can become more like Jesus Christ. And living around imperfect people and imperfect spouses is actually my spiritual gym where God completes the work he's begun in my heart. Now guys, when I talk about needing to love like this, particularly in marriage, a lot of times we, we're thinking of the big gesture, Right? Okay, I haven't been doing this, and so we're going to have some big romantic gesture. But to do that sort of undercuts the slow and steady, persistent truth of applying these scriptures. A friend of mine out in California, he's a wonderful husband, was at a Promise Keepers conference. And he was listening to the, the speakers challenge husbands to love their wives. And some came up with big gestures. I'm going to wash my wife's car when I get home. I'm, she's been wanting me to install this program on her computer. And, and, and Kevin kind of wanted to sit before the Lord just to really kind of get a feel for where he thought God was leading him. And he could sense God asking him, Kevin, what does your wife Sherry hate doing more than anything else? He said, oh, that's easy. She hates making the bed. All right, God, I got it. I will make her bed for the next week. And you know how God can be so silent? (laughs) He just kind of let, that's not really where I was going. And Kevin became convinced that God was challenging him to do this every morning for the rest of his married life. And pray for her as you do it so you keep up a good attitude. Kevin's now done that for over 3,500 straight days. Serving his wife that way. Even when he's away at a hotel, he makes the bed because he misses the opportunity to pray for his wife while doing a very familiar action. What Kevin teaches us is that the best way to demonstrate love to our wives, husbands, is that often slow and steady beats big and sweaty. It's the little things. We have to find the small gesture. Find something that makes your wife's life difficult and take care of it. Find something that gives her life joy and meet it in the small ways. And it, it, it sounds like an obligation, but again, in the upside down view of Jesus, that's where we find fulfillment and happiness and blessing. When my wife left Houston last summer, that's, that's where we live, and she was visiting our family. I had to preach on the weekend, so I needed to stay home. The day didn't feel complete if I wasn't doing something to bless her. One day, even though she's gone, I'm topping off the gas tank. So when it comes back, it's completely full. I I did some chores that I knew she'd want to get done before she got back. I even found some dirty boots and I went and got them professionally shined. Thought that would surprise her. But when I came back, she just kind of laughed and said, "Uh, Gary, those are my mud boots. I'm like, how, how am I supposed to know they're mud boots? And she's like, well, the mud on them would have been your first clue. So I, I didn't even know wives had mud boots. But, but, but she appreciated the gesture because the whole point is my day isn't done. If I can't find a way to show that love to my wife. And guys, when we love this way, it's going to cost us at times. It's not a convenient form of life. I have loved sports my entire life. But my favorite sport to watch is 
It's clearly college football. Just the drama, the excitement, every game matters. It changes all the time. One of the frustrations I had earlier in my life, because I would often speak on Saturdays, and it was more difficult to, to tape games back then. And I had like eight weekends in a row where I was speaking on Saturdays and not able to watch the games live, and it was so frustrating. But near the end of the season, I had a weekend off. And I looked at the TV schedule, and I saw that Notre Dame was going to be playing USC on a Friday night. Both teams were undefeated national championship implications. And I looked at that schedule and said, God is rewarding his servant, right? He, he knows I've been off doing all this work and here I have this great game, two historic programs, looking forward to it all week. Didn't even think to mention it to my wife because I can be very selfish. If I want to do it, nobody else really matters. And so I'm starting to gather things before the game and, and my wife comes downstairs holding the local newspaper, which always is dangerous. But anyway, she's, she's looking at the paper. She says, Gary, I was reading the paper today. I saw that Fairhaven has an open house tonight. Fairhaven is a funky part of the town where we lived. It's just, a, it's just about 20 minutes below the Canadian border. They have shops there. and The best way to describe it is there's nothing you need to buy in Fairhaven, right? If you need to buy something, you would go to the mall, you go downtown. Fairhaven sells I don't know, wind chimes and fancy salad tongs and goat milk soap and you know, all those or organic-y kind of things. And, and, and they're open every day, but they decide to put candles on the sidewalk one night and they call it an open house. Like it's a special thing, right? But Lisa says, you know, I was looking at this and I, I thought, wouldn't it be fun to go out tonight and look at cute shops? USC Notre Dame, cute shops. USC Notre Dame, cute. Normally in my life, that wouldn't even be a contest, but essentially what my wife was saying to me, Gary, I have been a single mom for eight weekends. My husband's home. I want to have a date. Are you in? And then God reminds me of that pesky verse in Ephesians 5, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And how does that end, guys? Who gave himself up for her. And I realize if my love for my wife isn't costing me something vocationally, uh, hobby-wise, financially, it's not love as Jesus demonstrated it. It's not love the way God designed me to love my wife. And ultimately we find far more fulfillment in having that need met than our selfish needs. And women, this is just as true for you. A lot of you give yourself so heroically to love, but what I found, sometimes the attitude can be different. One woman in her 60s stopped me after a talk. She waited for everybody to go. She really wanted to talk to me, and, and she said to me, Gary, what you're saying is so true. I've worked at a hospice for 20 years. Well, that made me stand up and take notes. That's an incredible ministry. Caring for people is what I do, yet somehow it never got transferred to home. I resented doing the very things for my husband that I spent my whole day doing for others until that is, my husband got cancer. After the first operation, he stayed home for six weeks and I stayed with him. Now, catch this. It was the best season of marriage we've ever had. Not the exciting years as newlyweds, not the exciting years of raising kids, you're younger, you have more energy, not even the empty nest years where you can get back together and, and have more time and, and resources. She believed the richest season of her marriage came 
when her husband got really sick. Like, how does that work? Here's how she explained it. Pulling tubes, cleaning sutures. I'm a nurse. I can do all that. I finally began doing for him everything I've done for everyone else. But I'd never served my husband like that the entire time we were married. But now I was. It changed my heart. It changed the way I looked at him. And serving him like that, it just drew us so close together. Now here's the upside down view of Jesus all over again because most of us think my marriage will get better when my spouse gets on board. She found out my marriage got better when I got on board. When I aligned myself with what God's view of my greatest need is, not to be loved, but to learn how to love, suddenly God became closer, my husband and I became closer, and she felt more blessed. We don't need a medical crisis to start living this way. We have the truth of God's scriptures to inspire us to do it now. Because ultimately, the greatest need we have Greatest need is not a closer relationship with our spouse. Might seem odd that a guy brought here to have a marriage conference says, that's not your greatest need. But that's not. Our greatest need is not to be closer to our spouse. It's to be closer with our God. And how do we get closer to God? How do we experience that? Well, people say pray and that's a good way. Read his word. Yeah, that will draw you closer to God. Worship. Gather together as a church family. Those are all good things. But there is another way. To bring God closer into our hearts, closer into our experience. And that way was pointed by 1 John 4, verse 12, when John says this, If we love one another, if, there's that if again, if we love one another, God lives in us. And his love is perfected in us. See, when God says our greatest need is to learn how to love others, the great brilliant circle of God is as you do that I become realer to you and you face a new fulfillment and a new happiness which is why I believe our greatest need isn't to be loved our greatest need is to learn how to love let's pray father I thank you that you don't just give us your word and say go at it but you promise your spirit to live it through us Jesus is the best model and the Spirit is the best equipper and empowerer for us to live out this truth. And so we just offer ourselves to you, Lord. Capture our minds. Capture our hearts. Cleanse this, Lord, that we will embrace this glorious upside-down life that is ultimately more fulfilling and even happier. We pray in Jesus' name.